Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, man, have I got a story for you. Um, Uh-oh. But, but first, I want to hear what's been going on with you. It's been a few weeks since we recorded the show. Yeah, you know, we're here and there and everywhere. It's, you know, end of the new year and so forth. I've hit a point with being home too long where I'm doing enough home automation that I now have a private GitHub repository for my house. Wow. Yes. I make code revisions to it. I'm writing in some YAML and some JavaScript, and then uh, yeah, I check in my house. That's what I do. Well, there you go. I mean, you know, GitHub's good for that. Yeah, it's nice to have a backup of your house in GitHub. Yeah, it's kind of like a specialized backup, isn't it? It is a thing for for code. It's a good place to put code. No two ways about it. So absolutely, I'm happy about that. But it's very funny to just realize, ah, uh, okay, yeah, no, I'm backing up my house right now. Yep. Well, uh, okay. I'm going to tell the story as my Better Know Framework segment. Okay. So roll the crazy music. All right, man. What do you got? Well, you know, Richard, that I got this new Jagunda monitor, right? This 49-inch monitor. Jagunda, is that really a word? Jagunda. That's a word. You can make it up. Yeah, it's a technical it, term. It, it's the brand it's name. Big. It dang, <laughs> dang big. That's a whole lot of monitor right there. A whole lot of monitor. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, um, I took a, a job to edit a video from the local symphony, the Eastern Connecticut Symphony Orchestra. Oh, yeah. They wanted to do this sleigh ride video. I think I might have even told this story, but... You told it to me. I know it. So, don't, don't you know, I don't know if the fans know it. I can't remember if I told it on the show. All right. Well, yeah. so the story goes that there's like 44 musicians that all went into the studio and recorded their part, but then they went home and they took cell phone video of them playing their part. And they had to play to a metronome and a, um, something went one, two, three, clap, right? So, they all clapped. Right. Then they played just their part. So, I was tasked with putting all these little cell phone videos, and I say little, some of them were huge, <laughs> just, you know. All depends on the phone, 4K right? 4K somewhere. Um, I'm sure the iPhone ones were the biggest. Of course. Inevitably. And some were in portrait mode, which is always annoying. Ugh. Because I had to come up with, you know, a grid. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Multiple grids with multiple shots that have different, you know, people like the woodwinds playing together, the strings playing together. Um, just various people playing together to make it interesting. Yeah. Basically, I put these 46 uh, or 44 or whatever videos together in uh, Adobe Premiere, and my machine went. <laughs> yeah. You think? <laughs> it was like. <laughs> That's a lot of video. Please right there. wait while I have a heart attack. Yeah. And I'll be right back with you. Having seizure now. Yeah. And meanwhile, the CPU fan is going crazy. It's going like, my wife likes, what is going on in there? And um, so, and and this is a gaming laptop with 32 gigs of RAM. Like, this is no right. slouch. But. Yeah. You're still dropping it to its knees. Yeah. Numbers and numbers. So, I set out to buy, um you know, a new desktop machine. I haven't had a desktop machine since I moved into the house, in the house. It's always been laptops. So, you know, most of the work I'm doing is from my home studio right now. So, I got, I put this parts list together and I sent it to my friend, Richard Campbell. You Mm -hmm. may have heard of him. (laughs) And Richard said, you know, this all looks good, except uh, 
the graphics card is a little outdated. And the list that I got was published on a blog in October. Yeah. Again, not, not very old. No. But since then, the NVIDIA 3800 series is the hotness, the GeForce yes. 3800 series. And, and, of course, there was a big supply problem because everything, you know, they, the eBay squatters went nuts and ordered every one of them. So, that I, you know, I think at the same time, I also told you, you might have a tough time finding one, but if you can, right. it'll be worth it. But I didn't have a hard time. In fact, that yeah. was the first thing that came, and I got it off Amazon. Here's the thing, though. It's a 10 gigabyte graphics card. It costs $1,500, right? Right. But, you know, I want to be able to render like as fast as I possibly can. And I also got 128 gigs of RAM. I got an i9 processor. I got a two terabyte SSD drive. Nice. And a 10 terabyte data drive. And a a CPU fan that has to be seen to be believed. (laughs) It's worth spending money on. Yeah. I remember you pinging me about that because there was a, Model ish match issue. We had to yeah. check some things. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the CPU fan is like, you remember the Zalman cases we used to talk about back? In yeah. The, the silent cases. 2000s. It, it kind of is like that. I mean, it's the biggest freaking heat sink you've ever seen in your life. But then it's got all the little pipes going up. I uh, believe so. Yeah. Remember when we first met, we were doing the water, I was doing the water cooling thing and it was insane. Right. There's liquid cooling in those pipes, right? Like it's literally what they call a phase change cooler. Hmm. So the liquid runs, when liquid's cool enough, it runs down the pipes, Hmm. it sits on that block where it's getting the heat and that vaporizes it and the energy it takes to vaporize it, you know, helps cool things, runs back up the pipes where the fan cools it back down again. Like it's a sealed, passive liquid-based phase change cooler. They're amazing. Yeah. So, for like 50 bucks right too, i know right? 50 like, bucks it's a lot for a cooler it, but still this fan came with its own screwdriver of course. Now, <laughs> <laughs> i'm serious it's <laughs> i love it now that's a serious company right hey you probably don't need a screwdriver but in case you do here's one yeah let me just make sure you have the right screwdriver. And it's the right, and it's the right screwdriver. screwdriver, right? You know, and we charged you that much this fan that we're going <laughs> to give you the screwdriver, screwdriver for it. Consider it a gift. <laughs> yes. From fans so are us. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet it's quiet. Well, it is, uh, it is not as quiet now as it was when I first hooked it up because I didn't plug it into the right connector and the oh. fan didn't come on. Oh, so it was very quiet when it was not. Oh, it was very quiet. Actually, when it was on, it was quiet until it froze. And (laughs) And then it was even quieter. Kelly, my wife goes, why did it freeze? And I said, because it overheated. And then she gave me this sideways look. It froze because it was too hot. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. English is funny. English is funny. So, (laughs) but it is kind of true. You don't think of it. Yeah. So, I was getting blue screens. It was just like restarting. It was the classic, you know, your computer's too hot and it's going to do you a favor by shutting down before everything burns yeah. to a crisp. Which is, you know, it's a good favor. It's a good favor. But I had to go sleuthing and figure it out. So, after I figured out the right fans and all that stuff and they came on and they're very quiet. Like, they're on now. You you can't hear them. But, you know, Brandon right. will take out that noise anyway. Um, so, after I got that going, I was I got another blue screen. After I'm loading up the project, which, by the way, in on this machine, just like pfft, 
no problem. Just whatever you want. You want to start playing right now? Go ahead. You just put your 44th video in there. We'll start playing right now. How's that? No problem. But, you know, I got another blue screen and I noticed that it was in the graphics card, in the graphics huh. driver. So I went to download the, the graphics driver and I installed that from NVIDIA.com. Uh, because I did, you know, I didn't actually do that. Windows did it for me, and who knows right. if it's the right one or whatever. So, so then I got another blue screen of death, and this one was in dgxkrnl.sys, dgxkernel.sys. I'm like, well, what the heck is that? So I went sleuthing, and I found. We'll actually publish the link to this uh, article that I found on windowsreport.com. But it says, yeah, this is a a driver. So you have some sort of weird mucky, mucky problem. And what it told me to do was um, to run uh, a scan, an SFC scan. And that told me that a file was corrupt, but it didn't tell me which one. It just said... (laughs) Thanks so much for that. Right. One of these files is corrupt. And, and there's, a sto- there's a thread coming to the story here. This SFC mm-hmm. scan ran and it said, hey, one of your system files is corrupt. You want to know which one it is? You have to run this command against your log and then pull out all the things that we just put in the log. I'm not going to tell right. you what it is. But you can go look for yourself, which made me mad. But I did that anyway. And yeah. I found out that it was pointing to PLA.dll. PLA.DLL. So that uh, turns out is some sort of really deep down drive in the, you know, in Windows system 32. Yeah. PLA is this performance logs and alerts, right? It's like a yeah core driver. So, and it cur- turns out that this one was corrupt and, and this article even said this can happen sometimes if you just freeze up for no reason or, you know, for a reason, but if you're, hmm. if you freeze or have a blue screen or whatever, this could get. So, I downloaded a safe version of that. And, of course, you can't just copy it into Windows 32, System 32 while it's running. So I had to reboot in command mode, go in there and copy the file out of my download folder, and everything's happy. But it made me think about why there couldn't just be a tool that did all these things that I had to do manually, you know? Right. This is a programming problem waiting uh, for a solution here. Um, It could have run that SFC scan, found all the log entries, found the things that I needed to replace, and at least given me the links of where I could download them. You know, let me download them, but don't make me go through logs and stuff. And I figured it out. This is why you don't have tools like this or companies that offer solutions like this unless they have something to sell you, like the Geek Squad at Best Buy or whatever. Right. It's because you're only a customer when you're angry, and then after you fix the problem, you're no longer a customer. There's no, no other upsell. There's no reason to have you on the mailing list. Like, you're done. You will never, yeah. right? Unless you have another problem. Unless you have another problem. And you might even feel entitled to get support on your computer, on the whole system, you know, once once they have, once something like this has fixed your system. So, I don't know. I'm being cynical, maybe, but that's my tale of woe and dumb. And I hope. Yeah, you just figure out how does anybody, you know, regular folk fix that stuff, right? Like, what do you do? I guess you, you go to the Geek Squad. You, you know, you find someone who'll do that for right. you. Right. There's no way that, you know, Grandma Franklin would ever figure this out. No way. 
unnecessarily complicated. But it's also a custom-built machine, right? Yep. Like normally, there'd be somebody with a warranty who had responsibility for that stuff and would have matched drivers. And right. da, 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 So, the da. moral of the story is uh, make sure all the Don't brands are plugged yeah. in before you turn it on. <laughs> Back to you, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Who's talking to us? Yeah. Hey, I grabbed a comment off a of show, 1658, the one we did with Tom back in October of 2019. Oh, yeah. So, he never did a 2020 show with us. Right. And that was the show where we talked about multi-tenant uh, cloud apps, which is a great conversation and generated a few comments. And I think this is a comment. This is Wayne Hiller mm-hmm. commenting on a comment that I read of his years before, but I thought it was very relevant in, in the context of the multi-tenant conversation yeah. too, where uh, Wayne goes on to say, since I've written that comment, the system has gotten a lot more complex. It now deals with parts and equipment dealers to manage entire businesses, including a parts locating service, mm-hmm. linking hundreds of dealers together, inventory sales, accounting purchases, and so on, all stored in shared databases that replicate some of the common data. Overall, having many dealers in the same databases has worked well. And this was a big talking point of that whole multi-tenancy thing. It's like if you really have a database for every customer, you have all kinds of issues, right? It's just, it's not cost-effective and efficient. Right. There are a few things I've learned. Using goods for primary keys has really simplified foreign keys and replication at the expense of, I think, performance, right? Because goods just don't index well. Uh, in most tables, the data includes the dealer ID for separation. I did have to build my own database restore system to allow me to restore just one dealer's data from backup. Great uh, issue to deal with. Right. Can't just restore the whole database if one dealer's data gets corrupt because that would wipe out the changes made by other dealers and make you very unpopular. Right. You know, two ways about that. Uh, on the other issue or blessing is that any database changes will affect all dealers accessing those databases. So that means no customization for one dealer mm-hmm. and that's, and that software has to always be up to date for the same time in all the databases, which I, this is definitely a place that we got to with Tom last time was this whole, you want to create a system that does not allow you to fragment your versioning right. across different customers. That there's only one code base. There's only one database architecture or you will descend into doom. Yes. Uh, and so he goes on to say, uh, so thanks so much for the input. We're really happy with what's going on. Uh, done and rocks. Yeah. Thanks yeah. Wayne. Yeah. Thank That's you. awesome. And great that, uh, that he's uh, making his way in the multi-tenant custom SaaS world. That's not an easy thing to do. Nope. And, uh, and Wayne, a copy of music to code by is on its way to you. I think you may already have one. And if you'd like a copy of music to code by, write a comment on the website at .net rocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of music to code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet, but plug in the CPU fan first. That's a good idea. I like I, that idea a lot. Just saying. Make your CPU happy. Yeah. Make your CPU happy. Make you happy. Thank you. Happy. Hey, Tom Kirkova is back with us, and uh, man, we're we're excited to have him here. Uh, yeah, he he did a uh, show with us in 2019. Mm-hmm. As Richard said, he works for Codit as an Azure architect. is a member of the Azug crew, A Z U G, and has been a Microsoft Azure MVP and Azure advisor since 2014. You can see Tom on around on GitHub maintaining Prometer and Azure deprecation, or contributing to projects like Keda and Arcus. He turns coffee into scalable and secure cloud systems and writes about his adventures on blog.tomkirkova.be. That's K-E-R-K, 
H-O-V-E. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Good to see you again. Good to have you back, man. Yeah, good to hear you. Multi-tenancy, the the new hotness for me anyway. It is a whole big world once you go there. You'll never stop learning. Yeah, lots of challenging problems in all of that. It's not just data either. It's not just like your your SQL server structure now has to have an extra layer, but how do you operate a single site with this code not slamming into each other? It, it basically ripples through your whole, whole platform, basically. It, it impacts how you deploy your code, how you roll it out, how you host it, how you store the data. It's mm. basically anywhere. Um so you really have to think carefully how you approach things. Yeah. And, and you have those rippling effects. Like none of these changes are easy no. or small. All your customers are going to be impacted. So you got to be very thoughtful. Yeah. And you'll never be ready because by the time you're done, then they deprecate something and you have to start over again. Excellent. You have to really like refactoring. Just yeah. saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, unless you're Greenfield. So we've talked about containers a few times in this show, and I, uh, you brought up the subject. Uh, I kind of excited the idea of just sort of figuring out there's just like, too many ways to run containers on Azure. Yep, that's definitely true. And uh, a lot of people already struggle because when they hear containers, they immediately think about Kubernetes. And I think that's a compliment for the marketing department, but you can also run containers without Kubernetes. And Sure. It, it really depends on how much control do you want, do you need, and uh, yeah, just make the right choices on where you host these containers. I, I This is a bit of a digression, but I, I my opinion around the Kubernetes thing, the Kubernetes win, because once upon a time there were many orchestration engines, really that it, you know, there was no market department. It's an open source library, mm-hmm. yep. right? Like I think what ultimately happened was Google had Kubernetes, it had it had its features, although it was still pretty bare metal. Like one would argue, DCOS was more sophisticated. And then uh, Azure did an implementation of it. And when Azure and Google both had the same uh, library, Amazon had to do one. And so it's almost like it won by accident. It's like suddenly all of the big cloud players supported it. Mm. And so it just squeezed everybody else out. Like here is the free tool that all the big guys run. And then the ecosystem exploded around it, the helms and all, like all of those different tools that, that make Kubernetes a little easier to live with. When all of that started to expand, it's like it's hard to battle that momentum. But, yep. you know, they, I think yeah. you know, your devs want one solution that works everywhere, even if it was almost unintentional. Yep. And it is really nice to see how the community is contributing to make the whole platform, let's say, um, really successful and make sure that you can run it on any cloud provider or Mm -hmm. on-prem or on the edge, basically, wherever you want. And that's a a big advantage you don't have Mm -hmm. to lock in anymore. Um, But it comes with consequences. Do you want to be hugging a cluster and making sure that uh, that scales accordingly? Or do you want to just focus on your your code and run it on app service or or Azure Functions, for example, and uh, rely on the cloud provider fully? Um, I'm sorry, did you say hugging your cluster? Is that what you said? Yeah. Instead of hugging VMs, we now hug clusters. (laughs) That's what the squirrels in my backyard do. (laughs) 
Um, I, I really got used to and really love the auto scaling feature of Azure app services. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, Kubernetes and YAML and all that, that whole world. Um, I, I dipped my toes into and the water was boiling hot. You know, I was like, this is not fun. Um, but, uh, I, I can understand how, powerful it is because anything that's scriptable is therefore really, really automatable. But at the same time, the learning curve was really, really high. Yeah. So uh, Azure App Service scales by using Azure uh, Monitor Autoscale. And if you ask me, that's a very good example of a good autoscaler. It allows you to just point to what you want to scale. You give the criteria based on metrics or, uh, yeah, metrics. Um, And then what often is forgotten is you have the scaling history and you can opt in for getting notifications. Right. And that's super important for your ops people to understand what is going on because that might lead to potential issues because you start hammering a service. But also the notifications is super important because you need to have that observability in your scaling. How is your scaling criteria? Is it misconfigured? Is it not aggressive enough? Um, is it basically outright wrong uh, because you went from one instance to 20 in, in one second? You need to check those things as well. Um, and Azure Monitor Autoscale is a pass autoscaler. They do it all for you. Just configure it, boom, it's done. Mm. But when you go to Kubernetes, however, it is a whole different world. It is, they sell it as a pass, but actually it is a cluster pass. You get a cluster with nodes. Um, you can deploy your applications on it, and then that's when it starts. Um, there's different levels of, of auto-scaling because you're now in charge of scaling your cluster and your application. And if you don't have any capacity anymore, you need to be able to handle those bursts, bursts uh, for your workload. Otherwise, you'll have an outage. How do you take care of all of these things? And how, as a developer, do you get started? Because you just want to deploy your freaking app to the cluster. Right. Um, yeah. So that's a whole... Oh, a whole new world. Um, so, and, I, and I like that you say outage, but in my experience, when a system is tipping over because too many people are using it, it doesn't look like an outage. It's not like a no. red light starts to flash or anything like that. It's just stuff breaks. It looks kind of insurrection. Sometimes. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Wrong show. Too soon. Too soon. Uh, yeah, there you go. But it, it, I mean, that's part of the problem is that you don't know you're having an outage. It looks like a bug. It looks it's errors like this shopping cart worked and that one didn't like it's that kind of bizarreness. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, that's what- like, how do you even measure that you are in trouble? Like, what? What? how do you know? Well, the, the beauty there is Azure Monitor also integrates with AKS, for example. So uh, or if you're running on prem, you can use Arc, uh, Azure Arc, that is. So you can get some metrics. You can get get notified, you can use the same alerts, etc. But still, it is up to you to either manually or auto-scale these things. And that is a big responsibility. So I'm hoping that Azure provides the, you know, the, the right level of abstraction um, between, you know, having buttons that do things and are easy to access and not uh, cutting you off from the full power of containers. I'm hoping anyway. What's the story? 
Yeah, and then now I'm thinking like Azure Functions. That's supposed to be auto scaling too. Like, why wouldn't I just go down that path? Yeah, Azure Functions is a good example of. I have some small amount of code that I want to run. Um, it is either scheduled or event driven, and and they scale it all for us. Um, that, right. That's the real starting point. Just give the code; they will manage everything for you. And so you're good. Don't go beyond that. Like you're ha- you'll be happy if you just use Azure Functions. I think that's a perfect starting point. If you don't have any issues or you don't need any more control, by all means. Ah, uh, so now you're putting the qualifiers on this, Tom. <laughs> yeah. It's like functions are fine until yeah, we need a flowchart. <laughs> <laughs> so Azure Functions scale fine, but it's a management problem that you get into. Well, I, I think um, there are different reasons uh, why you could um, decide to move away from Azure Functions. One of them, for example, is you don't run in Azure because you have um, on-prem workloads. Right. Or you want to use the same Azure Functions paradigm, but you want to run it on a Kubernetes cluster because your company strategy is to standardize on Kubernetes and not um, have mm-hmm. that vendor lock-in again. Interesting. But if I've already written a bunch of Azure functions, like I don't want to rewrite that stuff. Is it portable in any way? Oh, it is just as simple as um, wrapping it in a container and deploying it somewhere else or just uh, using the the CLI, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can also just host the container itself on Azure um, in premium and then use that as a first step, for example. So Right. But I'm still not sure why I'd want to do that. Like, where does Azure Functions fall down for me? Oh, I think the only reason, well, one of, there are very few reasons, um, but uh, the the multi-cloud or, or the on-prem story would be one. Right. Uh-huh. So it's the vendor thing yep. and, and, and yep. portability to more platforms than just Azure. Yep. And it is super easy to just uh, package them and deploy them somewhere else. Right. So there's no reason not to use functions if you're working in Azure because you can lift them out, wrap them, and take them elsewhere without rewriting them. Yeah, definitely. But it's, it's, it just, to me, seems like the most granular approach. You can just do a little bit at a time. You don't have to migrate everything. You're not committing to a big infrastructure. And if I understand this, under the hood, it is containers, right? It's just that they're containers owned by Microsoft mm-hmm. doing it for you. Yep. Now, for, okay. for some people, functions is a bit too granular. So that's where app services comes in. For example, you could use a, mm-hmm. an Azure web app for containers to host a container on app service. If it is not a web app, you can use Azure container instances, for example, which mm-hmm. is just containers as a service. Now, the difference with those two is um, web apps for containers obviously are aimed for web apps. You could run anything in it, but it has an HTTP endpoint. Um, and it has auto-scaling while Azure Container Instances does not. And that's a bit of a blind spot. Um, you could deploy individual containers manually, but there is no automated process for this, which is a bit of a pain. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really want to have that, you could build it yourself with, with Logic Apps, for example, um, if you really want to do it. Um, but if you have a typical uh, queue worker, for example, um, web apps for containers is not that really a, a nice fit. And then you could use that approach. But it's a lot of plumbing um, to do that, which is a bit of a gap in Azure, actually, um, to run workers in an auto-scalable way um, where the gap is either you can use functions or AKS, which is basically choosing between two different worlds. Um, right. Right. 
that's what Azure Surface Fabric Mesh was initially going to solve, which is kind of an abstraction on top of ACI. You deploy a container application, they do the auto-scaling, load balancing of your traffic, etc. But that hasn't got a lot of investment, so I'm a bit skeptical of what the future is for that. If you're not staggered by the number of different technologies you just rattled off there, man, like... We're not there yet. Yeah, because we, we started with functions. Then there's Azure Web Apps, but there's also web apps for containers. Yep. Or then there's Azure Container Instances. Yeah. And then there's Azure Service Fabric Mesh, which we this is all we've talked about so far. Yeah. But there is a chronology here, too, because I think the Fabric Mesh is like the oldest thing. Actually, it is not. It is the newest. The Azure Service Fabric Mesh is new, but it, you said there wasn't a lot of investment in it. So I think they released Azure Service Fabric Mesh back in um, 2018 or 19, um, about in the same period where Service Fabric was um, rising from the Microsoft internals and Kubernetes was also rising. And at that point in time, they were somewhat competing. While they are two different technologies, a lot of people saw them as competition. Um, and because of the branding of Service Fabric Mesh, I think uh, that was one of the reasons why it failed, because a lot of people saw that also as a, uh, a competitor of, of AKS, which was definitely not the case. It was an application-oriented container service. On top of that, you have the classic Microsoft problem of reusing brands. You yep. know, brands to um, that have for products that have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Or, well, maybe not absolutely nothing, but they're not the same thing. You know. Yeah, exactly. And and we with Coded were part of that private preview. And and when they initially pitched Azure Service Fabric Mesh, I, I told them, guys, if you do this, you're going to kill it even before it got launched. Uh, just call this Azure Container Apps or something, exactly. which is straightforward and everybody knows what to expect. It's self-explanatory. Uh, we don't have to go through a, a stupid branding. Exactly. Uh, and unfortunately, um, that became reality. Uh, and, and that's why I think it no longer got invested in Well, It is really what I want, um, auto-scaling container applications. Yeah, because I don't want to, I'm my scaling problem, right? This should be automatable and just work for me. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want to and have a cluster. I just want to have my scalable application, period. Right, that's it. But that, then we, does that lead us to AKS then finally? Yes. So AKS is the last one in the chain for running containers in Azure. And that's Azure Kubernetes Service? Yes, Azure yep. Kubernetes Service, which is the cluster platform as a service, um, right. where instead of running your own Kubernetes cluster, they manage the master nodes for you. You can work with it as if it would be any Kubernetes cluster, and you just have to um, monitor the worker nodes yourself. So I'm already talking about monitoring, um, scaling, and all of these bits and pieces, mm. which with the rest, we didn't have to do. So um, it's like mm -hmm. the best of both worlds, isn't it? I mean, you get the low-level control of Kubernetes and you get the managed service that yep. is known for. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying Kubernetes is a, is a bad technology, far from. But um, for me as a developer, it's still too many responsibilities for me. I don't want right. to be responsible for the cluster. Um, 
hopefully you have an ops team who can take it keep, take responsibility of that but still it is not really a pass offering uh, if you ask me now it is a beauty of a of a technology um, i use it at my customers as well because of the the gap for workers for example mm-hmm. but you really need to be uh, aware of what you need to do and, and you're really in for a treat um, because there's so many things to think about mm-hmm. uh, definitely on the scaling side um, so if we have a look at what kubernetes provides out of the box um, they have a cluster autoscaler which you have to configure um, where basically it would um, um, automatically add or remove instances based on the requested resources in the cluster. Nice. Uh, so imagine I have two nodes and the cluster um, basically sees, okay, we run out of capacity, with, but we still have pending workloads. Yeah. It will then start scaling. So it is not reactive. It basically waits until it sees the need. As long as the instant start time is fast enough, that's not that big of a deal. But if it's slow at all, yeah. you're making people wait. Yeah. And this is running on, on uh, VMSS. So that's Azure Virtual Machine Scale Sets. So mm-hmm. it is fairly sm- uh, it's fairly uh, fast. But yeah, just keep that in mind. Yeah. Of course, it's fully configurable, which sometimes makes it even more confusing. But you have you can have the control if you want. Uh, on the flip side, you can also do it manually, which is good for mitigating issues, obviously, but not for a production uh, workload. So that's for the cluster side. And guys, I want to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The starter edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Yo. Talking to our friend Tom Kirkov about just this array of container things that exist in Azure. And I, I still don't feel like we've gotten the like the perfect answer uh, for what, what one to use. Mm-hmm. Well, only if there was a perfect answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely depends how much control you want, what your scaling should look like. I like the word you used, responsibility. How much responsibility for that cluster do you want to own? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really the question. Um, Kubernetes is great, but do you want to have responsibility for all of that? So we just talked about scaling the cluster, but that's just the starting point. We also right. need to scale the applications itself. Right. Um, luckily, Kubernetes also has something for that out of the box, which is called a horizontal pod auto-scaling for a horizontal scaling, obviously, and the vertical pod auto-scaling. So basically adding more resources to that uh, application. Now, the tricky point with that is um, they only support CPU and memory out of the box, which is mm. good for standard workloads, but again, if you're processing queues or, or any other type of system where you're depending on an external system, you typically want to scale on that. You want to scale when there are 1,000 messages, not based on the CPU, for example. Um, 
For that, there's a lot of ways where you can pull in the external metrics by using metric adapters, etc., etc. But that's a lot of plumbing and, again, infrastructure that you have to run yourself. Right. Um, and you can only run one of those. So, for example, if you use Prometheus and Azure Monitor, you're already blocked because you have to pick one or the other. That brings me to Keda, um, which was started by Azure Functions team. Um, see the link already? We're talking about Kubernetes, and now we're talking about Azure Functions. See what I did there? Yeah, <laughs> it's hilarious. So they started Keda with Red Hat um, for the simple reason that they had customers who um, wanted to run Azure Functions on Kubernetes, for example. Um, and with the whole shift towards running Azure, whatever you want to, it is important that you can scale these things um, with the same experience. So they started Keda, which is an application-based autoscaler. So with Keda, you can basically define the workloads that you want to scale. You just say what the trigger is. For example, I want to scale based on an Azure service bus queue. And when this queue has 100 messages, you scale it for me. Mm. So as a developer, I don't have to understand how the internals of Kubernetes work. I just point to what I want to scale. I tell it when to scale. And that's it. Yeah. So, and for me, that is already making a lot more easier. Um, and basically that simple because by now I already know how Kubernetes works, but my colleagues who are new to Kubernetes have no understanding of all of those bits and pieces. And right. frankly, they shouldn't have to know them. Um, and that's what they're trying to solve. And interesting that Microsoft chose to just make it an open source library as part of the the Keda core, right? Like just that it's it's not part of the Microsoft project set at all. No, it, it is fully separate because they started it with Red Hat um, in January last year. So that's 2020. Uh, we actually donated it to the CNCF as a sandbox project. Nice. Um, CNCF? The, sorry, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, uh, right. which is an open source foundation, so that it really is a vendor neutral project. Um, so that we welcome everybody to contribute to it, to extend it. And by now, I think we already have more than 25 or maybe even 30 scalers already um, allowing your application to scale, be it Amazon, AWS, Google, Kafka, Alibaba Cloud, um, you name it, and we support it. Nice. Yeah. And Alibaba, for example, is a good example because they decided that instead of building their own autoscaler for their applications, they just use Keda internally and they just reuse that same open source project. They contribute back and that's how these things start to grow. Yeah, but also very healthy, right? That They're dependent on it too. So they're highly motivated to keep it healthy and to evolve with the new needs as things go by. It's always tough to have a scaler running on top of a scaler. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And then there's the one last aspect you need to keep in mind is if you have that cluster autoscaler, but you have those workloads waiting, why wait? Um, Azure Kubernetes service has this feature called virtual nodes. And basically, when they see that the cluster is full, instead of waiting for that node, they will deploy your applications on ACI behind the scenes. Nice. Now, from a Kubernetes perspective, your workload is just running inside the cluster, but with virtual nodes, it the name says it all. 
has a virtual node on ACI to which they are all deployed. So operators are not aware that it runs on ACI um, and your application still is able to scale. And these three um, scaling um, areas, let's say, together form the scaling sweet spot. So we have the cluster autoscaler to manage the cluster. You have the application autoscaler with either HPA or CADA. And then you have virtual nodes to handle those burst workloads, basically. But that's a lot of work um, to manage and set up all yourself. Yeah, so. right. And I'm trying to imagine the progression here. Because, I, I, I mean, sometimes we get an app where it's like we're going to re-engineer the whole thing uh, into this model. As opposed to, I, you know, I'm breaking apart an old SOA app by going after the pieces that were performing the poorest. So I wrote them as functions. Then I finally get enough functions that we're talking about organizing them better, making them more portable. So we want to bundle them up in Kubernetes. Would I then just go straight to AKS or is there an interim step there, like staying ACI first? I think we should go through the same list that we started with. So if you could start with Azure Functions, start right. there and, and then just go from FAS all the way to cluster pass, depending on the so, needs. So yeah, from functions to Kubernetes service, just repackage those functions as a Kubernetes service, and yep. then you can involve Kata if you want. Like yep. once you're at AKS, then all of these new auto-scaling architectures are available to you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I like that. Mm -hmm. That's coherent to me. Right. And it's interesting to me that folks that would very likely have stepped into container instances, you can get there, but it's only for burst loads. Like you you stage ACI for your burst loads in Kubernetes. Yeah. So you could use ACI separately if you want, but there you have the issue that there is no auto-scaler. So either you build yourself or you go to AKS and use virtual nodes. Um, right. Which implicitly makes Kubernetes your autoscaler for ACI, if you want to make it complicated. Uh, <laughs> it is an orchestrator in the end, but... Yes. I was trying not to make it complicated, <laughs> Tom. I don't know that it's working out well, but I, that was what I wanted to do. <laughs> I don't know if I feel better or not. I, <laughs> this podcast needs a, a whiteboard. Yeah. yeah. You've got some blog posts on this, though, don't you, Tom? Yes, and we have an, an Azure Friday video coming up as well. So people Excellent. who are interested in Kata can go there and watch that episode. I think they're going to publish it in somewhere in January or February, hopefully. Um, that works you through. We we use a, a .NET Core app, um, which is not Azure Function, just a simple .NET mm-hmm. Core app. We deploy it, and you see how it runs. Um, we... Um, send a ton of messages to the queue and basically it can't keep up. And then we basically just install Keda um, and add um, a scaled object, which basically defines how it should scale. So that is the trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can see how it basically scales it all the way up. And when the work is that is gone, it basically scales your application to zero, uh, which is also an interesting point, which I forgot to mention. Mm-hmm. We scale your application to zero so you can optimize for the cost. Meaning if none of your applications need to run, they will all go down to zero, basically allowing your cluster to scale down as well. So they basically work together. And you have that same sort of startup pause that you have with functions if it's yep. scaled to zero and you access yep. it. Yeah. Yep. 
It's basically just starting and stopping parts and, and it's stopping them gracefully so you can finish the work that you're already doing. And yeah, if you re- if you had a business where your dealers are closed for eight hours, you, that you could actually go to virtually cold and costing you almost no money at all until your first dealers show up and you start warming things back up again. Or maybe an hour before you you trip a function that just starts lighting up those basins, those base pods so that as the dealers come online, the system is responsive. Yep, exactly. That's cool. Yeah, all the way to cold is cool. Yeah, save that money, save the environment. Well, yeah, (laughs) but I think that's one of the great things we're seeing here now with the the side effect of the cloud is that we do have a granularity to understanding uh, the the cost of these services and and being able to allocate it out to an individual customer or to write down to an individual transaction if you want to be nutty enough. So that was a quick run through for people who are still following. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know about quick, but that was a run through. (laughs) (laughs) No, so so the key takeaway really is um, think about how much control you want. Uh, Well, sorry, think about how much control you need. Um, Think about the responsibilities and start as simple as possible. Do not use Azure Kubernetes service because you want to use Kubernetes. Um, It is nice technology, but just keep it simple. Everybody will be happy that you chose the simple option, not the hard one. Uh, And I think the only concern that folks have is like, am I picking anything that dead ends me that now these bigger things, should the app evolve or grow, I don't have access to them. But it doesn't sound like there is any dead ends here. No, that's the beauty of containers as well. It it is portable. eh? Mm -hmm. You just deploy the same application, but on a different runtime. Right. All right. I love it. Now, what about your open source project, this Autoscale ACI with Azure Serverless? What, what were you up to there? Uh, that's a, a small POC that I did just for fun, um, mm-hmm. where one of my biggest requests for ACI is having an autoscaler. Um, unfortunately, it's not there, but then I figured, hey, Azure has Azure Logic Apps, which has a bunch right. of connectors. Mm-hmm. What if we try to build our own autoscaler? Um, and basically, um, with Azure Monitor, um, I use that as a scale um, trigger where I create an alert with the criteria. So, for example, if my queue has more than 100 messages, uh, fire this alert. And then that yeah. one would um, trigger a logic app, which is the scale controller basically checks how many um, ACI instances do we have running, should we add one or not, and then it triggers another logic app to do an ARM deployment. Now, did, does that you make it sound like that level of control isn't possible in the current suite of services? Um, ideally, I just want to have one container running and say scale between 1 and 10 based on queue depth. That's not possible, but with logic apps, you kind of work around it um, again, it is a POC. I would not specifically run it myself, um, but it can be a middle ground between Azure Functions and AKS. I see. Um, because there is no code involved. It is just Logic Apps and Azure Monitor. Um, and yeah, it is a, a good middle ground to start with if you want to. Awesome. So, Tom, you got this project that you're working on. Uh, what else is in your inbox? 
Well, um, before this episode, I started a new open source project because you can't have enough of them. Yeah. Um, so, so I'll be working on that, which basically um, brings the Kubernetes native events outside of the cluster and oh. make them available in Azure Event Grid. Nice. Um, for the simple reason that we need to have that scaling observability, for example. Um, today, that is not possible uh, or not really easy. And it's basically a bridge um, between that. And then um, I'm also still maintaining Prometer, which basically brings Azure Monitor metrics mm. um, to Prometheus, StatsD, and uh, Atlassian status page. So I'm also working on that. Wow, that's awesome. Well, you know, keep us informed because you're a great person to uh, talk to about these things. And we want to know what your what your thoughts are and as we go forward in the future. Thank you. You will. Thank you for having me. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.